Welcome, listeners. This is Jonathan Yamasaki, creator and co-host of Go Entrepreneur Yourself. And this is Richard Ceballos, your critical yet compassionate co-host, all the way from the Silicon Valley slash San Francisco area. We are a podcast where we bring you local entrepreneurs and leaders from around the world to share their story about adversity, triumph, and their business. The name of this podcast speaks for itself. We empower you with digestible, inspiring, and valuable content on starting your business. Also, we like to dissect stories of success and talk about some of the raw truths and hardships of starting and maintaining your business. Today, we bring you an incredible serial entrepreneur, Jeff Wald, who is the founder of WorkMarket, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to manage freelancers, which was eventually acquired by ADP. Jeff founded several other tech companies, including Spingback, a social sharing platform that was eventually purchased by Salesforce. He is also an active angel investor, a startup advisor, as well as serving on numerous boards. Jeff also has a great book that I've been hearing about, but it's a bestseller from Amazon, The End of Jobs. Jeff, thank you for coming to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's great to be here. Jeff, today we're going to be focusing on the humble beginnings of your startup career, the stage of selling a company, how to talk about failure while it's happening, and the future of leadership and work. But before we get into that, we actually wanted to run our segment that we like to call the Fast Five. And this is an opportunity for the audience just to connect with you on a more personal level. So are you ready? I'm, I am ready. Okay. So this question doesn't have a lot of context, but... Ferry or express train? <laughs> um, express train. Okay. <laughs> Tell us a term or concept that is trending in the technology slash AI space right now. Meta Metaverse. Okay. Metaverse. Well, actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Metaverse is? I'm curious. <laughs> Here's the thing. I don't really get it. It's just everybody's <laughs> saying it now, and it sounds moronic. And, you know, I'm obviously that quote can come back to bite me in the butt, you know, years from now, but I was on the phone with an entrepreneur the other day and she said, we want to pit it to the metaverse. And I said, okay, yeah, don't do that. Don't ever say that again. I don't know what that is. She's like, oh, it's the future of work. I'm like, no, it's not. I've literally written a book on this. Stop doing that. Don't just lean into some buzzword because everyone's talking about it. Build your business, get traction in what people are doing now. You want to worry about the metaverse and what's going to happen in 10 years. Do that after you've raised tons of money. You are not in a position to be thinking about the metaverse today. Maybe they're fans of Marvel. Uh, the first thing I thought when you said verse, I was like, oh, multiverse? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the metaverse, too, as I understand it, is really just a decentralized internet where you have your kind of node on that internet, which is your profiling structure, and you're just going in. So you'd have the same avatar, the same persona in all these different places, not recreating profiles. And so Facebook is very big on the metaverse and feels that's where the internet is going. And it is entirely possible, but I think it's one of those things, much like Miami is a tech hub and clubhouse that mm. uh, got too exciting. And then just, it, it, they won't be very big things. Well, it's comforting to know that someone else is cynical about trendy words. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm the only one. I'm like, am I being a hater here? <laughs> but let's get to this next question. Who is one writer that you're a huge fan of right now? Uh, Brene Brown. Do you want to tell the audience any books that are currently out or any articles or something that we can maybe read more about? 
Well, in regards to Brene, you know, the gifts of imperfection, I think it's not, you know, it's out now and as much as it's been out for some time, but it's one of those books that you just sit and you go back to time and time again and you think to yourself, wow, this is how I want to live my life and this is how people should by embracing their imperfections and understanding that we all have them and you don't need to hide them. We're already getting philosophical in this fast five, folks. We go deep. So, we go deep. Yeah, we, go, we have yeah. no time to be superficial or surface level. Okay, so let's get a little deep here and talk about if we had a time machine. <laughs> with that knowledge, or with the knowledge you have now, would you want to redo your studies at Cornell or Harvard University? No. I mean, I would, there are a bunch of things I would redo, but the focus of my studies in those times, no. I mean, you know, I was an economics uh, undergrad, public policy for grad at Cornell, and then an MBA from Harvard. And the focus of my studies was, set me up very well for everything that I've done. They were amazing experiences. Those are things that I certainly wouldn't change. That's great to hear. And tell us one activity or hobby that you like to prioritize in your everyday life. Uh, exercise. You know, I need a solid half hour minimum, ideally an hour every single day to get the blood pumping, to be dripping sweat. And then that just changes my outlook for the day, the week. And on those times where I don't do it for, because I'm injured because of whatever reason, it has a substantive impact on, uh, my outlook. Okay, Jeff. Well, thank you for participating in this Fast Five. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, so we have it, we've had a chance to learn about you on a personal level. I want to get started with uh, your startup story where it began with Spinback, which opened mm -hmm. up our podcast on the note of failure, which may yes. seem like the last thing a young entrepreneur wants to talk, wants to think about. But you covered this in an interview a few years back. What is the value in dealing with failure while it's happening? Well, I'll say this. My favorite quote in startup land is the key to success is getting knocked down seven times and getting up eight. And there are a number of reasons I love that quote. One, it's kind of evocative. You know, you can see the man or the woman being knocked down in the dirt and you see that they got to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and, and keep putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward. Two, the numeric component in one aspect, because you get knocked down again and again and again. If you're going down this journey as an entrepreneur, you will fail, you know, minor failures again and again and again. It's going to happen. You're going to lose a customer. You're not going to get the funding you want. A team member is going to leave who you thought was going to be a solid member of the journey. All those things are going to happen, and you have to pick yourself up or put your hand out and go to, go to those that will help you get up, but you get up and you keep moving forward. The other reason I love it, by the way, is that it is mathematically inaccurate. I mean, why would I get knocked down seven times and get up eight? I should get knocked down seven and get up seven, yet it is on t-shirts. So this is a codified <laughs> piece of advice of getting knocked down seven and getting up eight, and it actually makes no sense to me. But when I, gotta, I talk to- I shouldn't to... wear a shirt like that here. <laughs> oh yeah, I love it. I have actually several of them in the other room just because I, I was like, I have to buy the shirt because I love it, but it's so stupid. Um, whenever I talk to friends that suddenly go, oh, you know, I want to angel invest and this and that, I'll say, okay, I, you should 100% do that. I think it's a great thing for people to do from a portfolio standpoint. And obviously, you can make a ton of money. I mean, I've had angel investments that have 200x'd. It's amazing. But that is so incredibly rare. And so I say to them, look, when you do this, understand the 99% outcome here is you will lose all your money. And if you can't afford to lose this money, don't do it. 
If you can't afford to have your startup go under, don't do it. Now, I don't want to discourage people. I'm not saying you can only do a startup if you've got a big financial cushion. No, 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 no. I just, you just need to be prepared for what is the most likely outcome. And everybody knows the statistics when you ask them, oh, what percent of startups fail? People will instinctively say 90% of startups fail. Yeah, that's correct. But I don't think that they internalize what that may mean. And in some ways they can't, right? As entrepreneurs, we have to be internally optimistic. We have to completely believe we're going to change the world or build a store or whatever it is. They don't have to be some world-changing tech company that we start. It can just be you know, a corner store or whatever it is. But the most likely outcome is failure, and you need to be realistic about that. And I was not with my first startup. Mm. So what what happens when we don't deal with this in the, in the context of starting your business? Well, what happened for me is that I got super depressed. I didn't leave, you know, I didn't get out of bed for a couple of days, didn't leave my apartment for a month. I mean, now that we've lived through a pandemic, not leaving your apartment for a month doesn't seem like that big a hardship since we all didn't do it for many, many months. But uh, yeah. when your startup fails and you're not prepared for it, it can be a huge blow. And it was for me. I was not prepared for it. I, I didn't know how to cope with it. I didn't look and listen to all the people that were trying to help me when I was down and depressed, and I wallowed in it for some time. Now look, eventually I picked myself up, I dusted myself off, and I took that next step forward, but I won't pretend that that was easy. It was not. It was one of the biggest challenges I've dealt with in my life. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Jeff. I think it's important to be in your feelings, but also knowing when to cut yourself off to say, hey, I can be upset for this time, but I'm not going to be sitting here for a month not doing anything and feeling sorry for myself. And sometimes it's hard as a young entrepreneur to find that balance or to know, okay, I'm too much in my head. I'm being too cerebral right now. I need to just put myself back out there. So when you were thinking about putting yourself back out there with work market, what energized you to do that? Well, my put myself back out there was actually taking Spinback, which was the first company. You know, and in my narrative and in my bio, um, I don't highlight it, although now I actually do in my full bio. I say I started a company called Spinback. It failed, was bankrupt, and I restarted that company with some other people, and we had a very successful outcome. And so going back to that same idea took a lot of confidence, but it also took me a solid year and a half. And in that year and a half, I kind of rebuilt my capital base because when Spinback went bankrupt, that first iteration, I was broke. You know, I got the call from my mom, do you need to move back home? And I said, well, I already paid my rent, so I have 30 days. Like that, that's where I was at. And luckily, I was able to pull myself together early enough. I did pay rent very late that particular month, but I did get it paid and was able to kind of slowly rebuild my capital base. And it wasn't until I was in a secure enough financial position that I felt comfortable stepping back into the entrepreneurial ring. So what were you learning about yourself while you were becoming a founder at Work Market? Was there anything new that was coming to mind? Or did you have some of the same approach with Spinback? How, how was that factoring into your, your work? I learned a lot about my insecurities and how much I behaved poorly because I was scared, because I was insecure, because I was afraid. And I had to adjust those behavior patterns very quickly as the company started to grow 
because you can be a little nuts and a little eccentric as an entrepreneur with a small team and you're building new stuff and you know you're bending all kinds of curves and everyone accepts those eccentricities when you start to then run a larger company with hundreds of employees with thousands of customers with very specific budgets and very specific SLAs and demands from customers you need to be a manager and a leader and that evolution Look, I'm not saying all managers and leaders have gotten rid of their insecurities and behave perfectly. Of course not. But my uh, work needed to be done, and I got a coach, and I worked very hard at it. Um, and I, you know, my coach helped me become a better manager, a better leader, and a better person. And so those were some of the things that I needed to do to become a better entrepreneurial leader. And those are things that I will certainly take with me to my next startup. And I think one thing that just comes to mind is, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you started uh, your first venture? Spinback was, I was 32. Okay. Nowadays, we're seeing a lot younger entrepreneurs, but did you feel at all that you you weren't essentially like ready for that next level? Is that where the mentorship came from or what was it? No, I didn't think I understood that, that I wasn't ready to be a good Manager. You know, it's funny when um, we got bought by ADP, I had spent, you know, I had some of the best venture capitalists in the world that backed work market and we raised a ton of money. And they would say to me, you're the best operator in our portfolio. You know how to operate things because I had worked on it and I become a much better manager. And I'd always was very analytical and was able to present things and do things like that. They mm-hmm. said, but you're not really that much of a visionary. And I was like, <laughs> OK, well, whatever. I don't really I'm not trying to be. And I got into ADP and ADP was like, wow, you're the most visionary guy we've ever met, but you're a terrible operator. Like you do not know what you're doing. I'm like, okay, teach me. That's fine. That's amazing. You guys think I'm a visionary, but okay. So it's just, it's all context. And so those things happened for me in my early forties that I was able to become capable of going on that journey to become what the VCs viewed as a great operator, and then to hear from ADP that I was actually a terrible operator and to let them teach me how to become a better one. And so, you know, we're all on that journey of getting better and we all should approach these things with a growth mindset of, hey, okay, I want to learn. Hey, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to fail. That's okay. I'm just going to take the lessons. I'm going to keep going. But those are, I don't pretend that those are easy things to get to a place to be prepared to do mentally. Yeah. They weren't think, easy for me. Yeah, and I think that's that. I think that's great that you you bring that that realness to that because a lot of entrepreneurs they can be siloed or stubborn in their ways, and to hear that sort of feedback from different, you know, being tugged at different areas from different people, could be really difficult sometimes for a person just in general to hear. Um, I will say though, you know, Jonathan, there's a balance, right? Like you mm-hmm. need to be dogmatic, and you need to see what that end goal is, and you need to smash through any walls and all the people saying, oh, it's not going to work and oh, you shouldn't Mm -hmm. do it. And oh, why aren't you doing it this way? You need to be that person, but you got to balance it with the listening and the Mm -hmm. asking for help when you need it and being realistic. And again, it's a tough balance to strike. (laughs) Yeah. So then walk us through ADP because uh, they started to show interest in work market. And I heard the story about it a little bit from another podcast interview. Well, I would tell every tech entrepreneur and all the angel investments I've made or any companies I advise, look, your job as a tech founder 
is to make sure that you are in touch with all of the people that may buy your company. You know, if the head of biz dev at IBM comes to town and IBM's a potential buyer and you're not having coffee with him or her, that's a miss on your part. I'm not saying you have to do it. I'm just saying you're increasing your probabilities of success because companies are sold. They're not bought, right? There were plenty of other things that, you know, many other companies could buy instead of spin back or work market. It's just we positioned ourselves well. That said, I didn't have ADP on my list. I had 15 companies that I thought were the logical buyers of work market, and ADP was not one of them. And ADP came knocking. Um, they didn't come knocking. I apologize. I reached out to them because I heard that ADP had a venture group. I read about ADP Ventures. And one of the things I try to do is to keep a list of angel investors that invest in my space because I always get calls from VCs and from entrepreneurs that are in HR tech, and they say, hey, oh, can you meet with this company? Oh, can you meet with my friend? Oh, can you meet with me? And it's always you know, I'm always happy to, and to the extent that I can provide any advice. But the thing is, guys, like, I, I, I'm never going to provide advice in that hour-long meeting. I'm never going to say something they didn't think of. They're not going to be like, oh, my gosh, we never thought of that. Of course they thought of it. They've been working on their company 18 hours a day, seven days a week for years. I'm not going to think of something in an hour they didn't think of. But what I can do to help them is to introduce them to the kinds of people that give money to companies like that. So I keep another list, and that list is investors in HR tech. And so I thought, oh, ADP Ventures, I should know them. So I reached out, and the guy at ADP Ventures said, look, ADP Ventures doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, we're an internal kind of skunk works, but I know who you are. I know work market, and I'd love to get together. And that began a series of discussions where we would get together. I would give them my speech on the future of work, which is all now in this book. Um, and they kept coming back. And there'd be more and more of them. Every six weeks or so, they'd come back. It was two of them, then three of them, then five of them, then seven of them. And at one point, one of them called and said, hey, we want to come back. We want to hear the future of work talk again and just debate and discuss things. There are going to be 30 of us. And there was something about that number 30, because I didn't have a room that held 30, which means I needed to use our event <laughs> space, which means I needed to clear people out, and it was going to disrupt people's days. And I was like, you know what? No. Like, what, what do you mean no? I'm like, no, you can't come. I'm done. I'm done with you guys. Like we've uh -huh. been doing this for a year and I'm not like your monkey where anytime you want to know what's going on in the future of work, I dance for you. So no. And I said some expletives. I'm like, you guys can blank off. Like I'm done. Uh -huh. And there was a very long pause. You know, the guy at the other end of the phone was just like, uh, um, uh, <laughs> he said, eventually he says, you know, well, I also wanted to talk to you about, you know, maybe buying work market. I was like, Oh, well, then come on down. I'll dance any way you want. Just come, come, come. We have sandwiches. Like, and so that began a formal process that six months later, after we hired a banker and we contacted all the 15 other people and they put in bids and ADP raised their bid. And we just got very, very lucky to find a partner like ADP, uh, who is a great home for work market. Yeah. And I think on the same podcast interview, I noticed when you worked at that uh, that agreement with ADP, you and the CEO, Carlos Rodriguez, spoke and you agreed to stay there for two and a half years mm -hmm. with them because they need a great mind like yours to help nurture the company into ADP. That must have been difficult, letting go of a company that was essentially your baby and having another company take ownership. You know, it, it that is a very common assumption. And for me, mm -hmm. it wasn't. You know, part of the reason we sold the company is I was done. 
And we had our final board meeting to approve the deal. And the investors are like, well, maybe we should put another $25 million in, though, and go another you know, 18 months and see what happens. And I was like, all right, cool. If you guys want to do that, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not in. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm, I'm done. If you guys don't want to sell the company, I'll respect it. I'll transition to a new leader or to some of our existing team members, whatever works. And I'm always here to help. But I, I can't do this anymore because I just was physically and mentally exhausted. And so for me, having the resources of ADP, for me, having one of the largest, most well-run companies on the planet get to show me how to be a better operator, how to, how to be a better entrepreneur, right? From like a tech standpoint, they improved our tech stack. I mean, ADP is one of the most secure companies, if not the most secure, quite frankly, on the planet because ADP is moving trillions of dollars around the globe. And so everyone's trying to get into their systems. And so understanding all of those things, that was a gift to me. Loved it. Loved the experience. And it happens to be run by some of the nicest, smartest people in the world. And so I just thoroughly enjoyed my time. That said, when my handshake agreement, because there was no other agreement, I shook hands with Carlos. I said, I give you my word. I will stay for two and a half years. He said, oh, we'll get the lawyers. I'm like, you don't need lawyers. I just shook your hand. I will stay. But the day my two and a half years expired, I left, right? Like there was, I mean, I'm, it, it's not me to be there. I learned a huge amount. I'm incredibly grateful for the time, but for somebody that likes to move fast and break things, ADP is not a good place because they don't move uh. fast and they do not break things. <laughs> Everything is perfectly done there. And that's just, and I respect it. I, I just didn't want it for me much longer. Yeah, just because ADP is known for that behemoth of payroll. It's a payroll company, and they've been around for... It is years. an HR software company that does payroll, but they are the largest provider of payroll on the planet, but they're also the largest provider of HR software. Yeah. Now, one thing that, that came to mind as you were talking is, did you always think that you would be a serial entrepreneur, or did that just come up because of your because of how you are when you said that you were just maybe wanting to move on to another thing? work on a different project like how, how did that come about and, and I, describe to us uh, what a serial entrepreneur is well i don't know that i can describe what a serial entrepreneur is i mean you know i guess the definition would be somebody that has started multiple companies and and i do get to have that mantle now that is certainly not what i started out as look i started my career in the very prescribed path of being an investment banker you know i started in the m a group at jp morgan and if you would ask me at 22, as I was a little investment analyst, what are you going to do for the rest of your career? That I would say, I'm going to run JP Morgan one day. Like, that's all I wanted was just to climb the ranks of JP Morgan. And slowly over time, I got an entrepreneurial desire. I started, you know, pitching things to the head of the M&A group. I'm like, hey, we could do this things better if we did this, this, and this. Hey, we should build a portal where people could come and look at deals. Hey, you know, we're ordering food every night. Why don't we help? you know, find a company that can do this in a more automated fashion. I was basically describing seamless. And that actually led to JP Morgan investing in a company, Capital IQ is the name of the company, because I kept saying, we need a databasing structure. These guys are building it. We should support them. We should be an anchor customer. And, you know, we ended up being an anchor customer and, and an investor. And when I left JP Morgan, I went to a venture firm. Uh, so this was after business school. And I would sit in these meetings with entrepreneurs and my boss would yell at me after the meetings. He's like, you spend these meetings fawning over these entrepreneurs, telling them how great they are. We have to negotiate with these people. 
you can't tell them how amazing they are and how they're going to change the world. Like, then they get inflated senses in their heads as what their companies are worth. And then we're trying to give them money at a low valuation. Because I would sit there and I'd just be like, oh, my God, that's so great. Oh, my God, that's so amazing. You guys are so amazing. That's what you're building. is so cool. Because I thought it was super cool. And yeah. so this guy said, you know what? If you're so enamored with it, you should go do it. And we'll back you. And unfortunately, I only took one part of his advice, which is I should go do it. I did not take their money. I funded it myself, which is <laughs> why I ended up broke when it failed. Going back to So thank you for sharing that. I think that's really insightful for people to hear the truth of, of what went on during that time. Yeah, I know, Jeff, you expressed not having such a hard time letting go of uh, work market, <laughs> but... What tips would you give to maybe some young entrepreneurs who are not in that same position of wanting to let go? What are some things they should keep in mind if they're in that well, position? There are a few things to, that come to mind here, and I wouldn't pretend to be a great advice giver. I'm, I'm a better experience sharer than advice giver because advice requires context. And obviously, I don't have context for your listeners and, and what they're each individually going through. That said, I think a lot about the fact that I'm a fiduciary. Right, I've taken other people's money, and even though I may not want to sell because I want to continue building it because there are other cool things I want to accomplish, I made the statement to the board of Work Market, and I was the largest individual shareholder of Work Market, but you know, there was still a board, and and I, I said, look, from an expected value standpoint, this is the best I think we're gonna do. And they had a different point of view. They said, no, 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 if we keep it private, if we stay independent and we put more money into it, we can grow revenue faster and we can sell it for even more a couple of years down the line. I said, all right, I can't build that case. And so I am a very data-driven person. And to me, if we took more money, everyone gets diluted. We have to spend that money and we have to be able to grow revenue a certain percent. You know, we have to grow 70, 80% again. And we have to blah, blah, blah. And if we sold the company for 50% more two years later, is mathematically that better for me? And the answer was no. A, I didn't think there was a high probability we could sell it for 50% more. And B, the math and the time value of money and the dilution meant that that wasn't worth my while. And so even, the, even if I were raring to go and wasn't exhausted, I would have said the best thing for the shareholders right now is to sell this company. And again, they disagreed with that, but they didn't have the data that I had or my knowledge of the industry or my knowledge of a host of things. So they would have listened to that argument in and of itself, let alone the, I'm tired and I don't want to do it. In which case they said, well, if you're not going to do it, then we're not putting more money and we have to sell the company. And so it ended the debate. So I always remind people that they're fiduciaries and they have an obligation to get the highest expected value outcome for the people that put money into their company. So even if you don't want to give it up, what's the best outcome for your shareholders? You need to always be thinking about them because they made a bet on you and you have a fiduciary obligation to them. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Jeff. Yeah. Listening to your talk today, I mean, a leadership trait that stands out, and this is coming from like serving your shareholders, but also like your employees. Because sure. what I've They're shareholders seen, too. Mm-hmm, what I've seen is like, I mean, you don't give a shit about like accolades and medals. You're really about helping those around you reach further lengths. Yeah. I mean, look, I, it's not that I don't want the money. I'll take the money. Right, money's right. Good. I'll, you, you know, I'll trade all the money I have in the world for more money. Like, <laughs> and no problem. 
but uh, it's a great Monty Burns quote. When people ask me what am I the most proud of, I do start rattling off the names like Caitlin Mann and Liz Sue and Ryan Ballard and Mike Schwartz and all these people whose careers were able to knee hit the knee of a curve and just jump up because they spent time with us. And that is the best thing we accomplished at work market. When people say, oh, what are you investing from an angel standpoint? I will say, well, most of my angel investments are former work market people because they're leaving and starting their own things. And that's what I've always wanted for them. There was a reason that every single employee of work market was a shareholder of work market. That was super important to me. There was a reason that we were super transparent with everything that happened at work market, the wins, the losses, the things I was concerned about. We would take the board deck at the end of a board meeting and the next day present that exact same deck minus a slide or two on comp or some other things that are really comp is my is between me and each individual person not for the whole company to know but we would present that same board deck to the entire company because i wanted them to learn and i also wanted them to have full knowledge of what was going on because that how's that's how i sleep at night right because the company many times came close to going out of business and if they're going to stay and fight by my side they need to know everything because if i'm leading the company and they think everything's going great, and then <clears throat> the next day I'm like, actually, everything was terrible and we're out of business, then I've really messed them up, right? They got to go find jobs. They have families. They have obligations. But if I'm very clear with them, that guys, we may not make payroll in two weeks, and that's the reality. And I think we're going to get through it, but I just want to make sure everybody understands that. And they knew, obviously, months in advance that we were getting to that point. Then they can wake up in the morning and make the decision to come to work market because they think we're going to get through it and I'm going to learn a lot. I'm going to have fun and I'm going to make money. And as long as I'm transparent with them, then if I screw the whole thing up, which is a very high probability for things that I do, then they knew everything and they made their adults. They made the best decisions for them and their family. And they chose to think that I was going to get through it. And I didn't, I screwed it up and that's okay. A question that sort of, or something that strikes me is eventually that first venture, it was bought by Salesforce, mm -hmm. but it was bankrupt. So I guess, tell us what took place from that time, from, from the bankruptcy to like... There were three of us that founded the first Spinback, uh -huh. and the other two sued each other. And so it was a situation that I was being transparent with our, I think we had about 15 employees and, and, and people working with us. Um, and I was telling them, look, these two are fighting. I don't know what the outcome's going to be. And then I came back to the office one day. I was like, there's now an injunction. I forget what it was, but I had to, I had to stop everybody. I was like, everyone's got to go home. Like, we're done. Like, I'm sending all the money back to the investors because um, we had raised money at that point. Uh, and then I dug into my pocket and paid investors back for the money we had spent, which is why I ended up broke. Because I didn't think, because all the investors were friends of mine, and I didn't think that they should lose their money because these two idiots sued each other. So I paid them back, which was a great irony because one of the investors are, is a group I'm very close with, and they're one of the wealthiest families in the world. And I was wiring them back, you know, $500,000, which to them is nothing. To me, it was my last dollars. Like, because I, I didn't have, I, and so, and if they had known that, they never would have been like, oh my God, no, 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 just keep it. Don't worry about it. But I, I wouldn't, I, that, you know, you're not losing your money uh, on that. And so, you know, went through the depression, went through the not leaving the apartment, picked myself, dusted, dusted myself off. And I kept all the code 
as these two were suing each other and we had, you know, depositions and all this other stuff, I kept the code on some thumb drives and I kept paying the Amazon bill for Amazon Web Services to keep everything up and running. So I had a bunch of things on thumb drives and we had the AWS instance. And so when the lawsuit got settled and then I had the legal right back to the assets, uh, I thought, all right, well, you know, this concept of allowing people to share content through the, the social web, which, you know, in 2006 was a very novel thing, uh, still plays and we should try it. But at that point, we were about to start work market. And so what I ended up doing uh, was me and um, my, one, of my, my co one of the two co-founders, we found two other guys. And they took the front seat and we took the back seat. And so I am a co-founder of that entity, Spinback, which was an entirely new legal entity. But I am not the person that drove that bus. You know, I was more in the back seat. But, you know, I was doing Spinback work most days as uh, we were ideating Work Market. Spinback started before Work Market started, but the two were operating at the same time. And then the company got sold and ended up being a good outcome. But I never told people about it for the longest time. I would say, oh, I founded this company Spinback and through various twists and turns, it got sold. And it took a long time before I was comfortable telling people, no, no, I founded a company and it went bust and it left me bust. And it really sucked and it took me a long time to pick myself up and dust myself off and keep going. And so the narrative is confusing because there was a very long period of my life where I just wasn't candid about what actually happened. Yeah, Jeff, this is something I've appreciated you saying in past interviews, talking about the importance of vulnerability. And I think even as a millennial, sometimes I don't feel comfortable talking about a story if it doesn't have this romantic outcome of, right. oh yeah, this relationship didn't work out, but I ended up moving to this great city and this happened for me. So it seems like right. we're afraid to bring that fear to the conversation. And even when you were talking about investors of just being more upfront about, hey, this is what could happen and we're all taking a risk here. So I'm yeah. glad you learned from that experience of not feeling bad and having to dig into your own pocket because I think young entrepreneurs should keep that in mind of how do we be more transparent and how do we not punish ourselves or try to avoid the fear or vulnerability because I think vulnerability makes us stronger in a lot of ways, but Completely. we don't seem that as intuitive at first. <laughs> Look, vulnerability certainly makes us stronger. It builds trust with people when you're candid with them and you be vulnerable with them and trust is the essential element to any team dynamic. But, you know, back on me paying people back, look, that family has now invested with me in a ton of other things, right? With way more money that they had put into Spinback. You know, I have this company, Scenario, former work market engineer that I've worked with the last couple of years. And he finally said, look, I think I'm ready to raise capital. And so I sent an email out to some friends and I said, hey, I'm going to lead this angel round. I'm going to put in X. I got an email from this guy in the family and he said, so how much are you putting in? I emailed him and said X. He said, great, we'll put an X. No further questions. Just send me the paperwork. That was it. You didn't need to know anything else. It's just, oh, you're putting an X. We'll put an X. Done. Next question. And so you earn that because people trust you. You earn that because you do the right thing. Look, would they have done it even if I hadn't returned their money and they had lost money on me? Yeah, probably. 
But now it's not even a question. They're just like, sure, what are you doing? Yep, we're putting money. Next, you know, send send papers, we'll wire money. And so you build that trust over time. You know, when people say, oh, well, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that, you know, you work a lifetime to be able to pick up that phone and make that call. And so sometimes people say, oh, you didn't put that much time into it. I said, no, I didn't put that much time into it because I'm able to pick up the phone and get stuff done because of the way that I've conducted myself professionally over 20 years that people say, oh, you want X, Y, or Z? Yeah, no problem, Jeff, we'll do it. And so, you know, I got criticized the other day for a board that I'm on. They're like, oh, you didn't spend enough time doing this. I said, just because I can do something in five minutes that it takes you days to do doesn't mean that I didn't add equal, if not more value. I just am able to pick up the phone and get it done. And so it's not the time that you spend, it's the value you bring. And you're able to bring a lot of value if you have built those relationships and people will answer your call. Yeah, this, that's something my boss used to say that I appreciate. One of my ex-bosses was pick up the phone. That was one of the first tips that he gave me. And I think that's a valuable tip to our young entrepreneurs of just being active. A lot of our success and ideas, you can't be passive about them. You have to act on them. Now, Jeff, we don't have a lot of time, but I do want to ask about this number one Amazon bestseller. We won't be able to get into all of the details, but no problem. the I'll end of jobs, yes, the end of jobs, the rise of on-demand workers and agile corporations. So I want to start with saying congratulations. You, you did release this in the mid-2020. And how do you think the pandemic, politics, or the state of the world in general is also impacting the future of work? Was that something you were able to tie into your book? So I was not able to tie in, in because if I had pulled the book from the publishing cycle to give like a COVID update or whatever, it was like <laughs> another six months before it got released. And I will tell you this, writing a book sucks. And when it, we went to content lock, there was really nothing, you know, not even a global pandemic that was going to stop me from just putting the book out. Yeah. I, I was happy with the content I produced, but I just was done with it. It took me seven years to, to get this book into shape where I was proud of it. Um, and so has the world changed? Absolutely. Is the future of work and the predictions I've made um, still intact? Yes, because what we did in the book is to take a very long look at, look at the history of work to take a very hard look at the data around the world of work and to talk and give people an understanding about how it is companies actually engage workers and deploy capital. Because when you're looking through those lenses, you're able to get a much more high probability view of the world of work. Now, look, did we predict a pandemic? Of course not. But we do talk about how vast changes in the world of work happen very infrequently and they usually need some massive exogenous event, a war, a depression, a pandemic. And so did I think the world of work was going to move to a much more remote context? 100%. That was a very clear trend. Did I think it was going to happen this quickly? Of course not, because the only way the framework would allow it to happen this quickly is with some huge event. And I have no way of predicting that huge event. And so it occurred much and much like we say in the book, that is where you see curves massively change in the world of work, and we saw it. So the world of remote work is now in a substantively more advanced state 
than it would have been because of the pandemic. Okay. I don't I don't sit there and say my predictions over the next 20 years are wrong. They just happened a lot sooner in the context of remote work. But the biggest conclusion that we draw from the book is that as we look at this fourth industrial revolution, the robots and AI, that there will be no net job losses, that we will lose plenty of jobs. You know, the word there is net, but we will create enough jobs to more than supplant those that are lost. Our challenge in this fourth industrial revolution, and it's a challenge maybe many entrepreneurs are out there trying to solve, is how do we retrain the workers from the industries, the job functions, maybe even the geographies where jobs are disappearing and move them to the high growth areas and job functions and industries where jobs are being created. Because in the past industrial revolutions who had the same amount of job displacement, the same amount of job growth, we did a very poor job of this as a society. And right. workers get left behind, and when they get left behind, they get real angry, and understandably so. And so as I think about the big challenges we have for society, as I outline in the book, I think about this worker retraining and how are we going to effectively retrain tens of millions of workers in the United States to move into high-growth industries over the next 20 years. Obviously, companies are worrying about how they they can retrain their workers, but Kind of what comes up to my mind is a solution to just education, like starting back from education. What what are your thoughts about that as far as like getting workers to to be able to work in this company that where they have to handle machinery or computers that are AI? Mm -hmm. I will say this, Jonathan. It's a great question because it's such an unknown. Who owns this retraining? Does the individual own it? Does the individual have to go and spend their own dollars outside of the education system, out of the formal education system, and do skills training? Maybe. Should the government incent that? Maybe. Should the education system adjust and move away from the four-year college and move to more technical skills? Should they be embracing AR and VR as a way to do more remote learning? Maybe. Should the government incent that? Do companies own it? And do companies just have to ramp up their training and do more on-site training because they're not getting people that are doing it themselves and the education system isn't preparing them? Maybe. And so the government, companies, education system, and individuals, there's some balance in there as to who's got to do what here. But I'll tell you this, great entrepreneurs aren't sitting there and waiting. There's a company called Transfer VR, which I have the pleasure of being uh, on the board of since it's, it's founding. It was just me and the founder at, at uh, the early stages. And Barani and his team are building the VR training that helps workers get into middle-class jobs. And he is selling his software to government agencies. He's selling his software to companies. He's selling software to two-year colleges, four-year colleges, technical colleges, high schools, and they are killing it right now. I mean, just absolutely killing it. It's one of the most amazing companies I've ever had the pleasure of being part of. Uh, because not only are they growing and they're fully rocket shipping, but they're doing something to solve what I would argue outside of climate change and a few other things is one of the most important challenges we will face as a society. And that is how we get people into stable jobs. Yeah, thank you, Jeff, for that shout out and for sharing that insight. I know we have limited minutes to talk more about your work and we wanted to focus a little more on leadership so 
what is one underrated trait or characteristic that makes someone a great and effective leader? Empathy. There's a great quote that I love, which is people won't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. And for all of the faults I had as a leader at work market through a good part of its life, one fault I definitely did not have was my people knew I cared about them. They knew that I would help them, that I was there for them in their professional endeavors, in work market, the professional endeavors outside of work market, in their personal lives, in their professional development, and their personal development. I was there to support them no matter what. And so that is something that I think uh, a lot of people don't appreciate. And if you show people that you really care about them and you want to help them in their journey, even if that journey is outside of your company, they'll they'll stay at your company actually longer and they'll really go to bat for you and really, really bring their A game every single day. Yeah, something I appreciate about that same ex-boss was he was invested in his workers in a way where even though he knew I was going to leave or there was something more for me, he was wanted to make sure that my experience at the company was going to be the best and that I was going to get the most out of that experience. And when I did approach him with a new opportunity, it was just great that he had that empathy. So uh, I'm glad to that we're getting that word out to these future entrepreneurs. 100%. Everybody at Work Market knew you could come in and say, hey, I think, I think I've kind of plateaued here. And I would say, okay, well, let's see if we can find a way to unplateau you here. And if we can't, Tell me what kind of company you want to go to. I will pick up the phone. I will, because I was doing my friends a favor by sending them some of these people because they were amazing engineers and operators and customer support people and all those other things. And so if their time was up at work market, great. Let me send you to another company, hopefully a company where I'm an investor, by the way. So well, the better. Yeah, it's really important to keep that in mind. Okay, Jeff, we have one more short segment for you. It is not a fast five. It's our nuggets of knowledge. So mm. just think of it as a little box of chicken nuggets, however you want to view it. So okay. what piece of advice would you uh, give to college graduates, young entrepreneurs? What's something they should be keeping in mind when they're starting their business? I know you've, you've given a lot in past interviews. I think the most important thing is perseverance. And I tell this to my nieces and nephews, and I will say to them, hard work, you just have to keep going. I, you know, they're like, oh, are you proud of, aren't you proud of me for this? I'm like, I'm proud of you because you put the work in. I'm not proud <laughs> because you got an A or because, you know, you won a soccer game. I'm like, I'm proud that you got on the field every day and you practiced and you gave it a your all. And so you got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. That, that sounds like my mom, literally. I'd, I've come home, mom, look at all this stuff I got. Oh, that's great. And what else are you doing? And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> got to put in the work. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, Jeff, for being on our show. Tell our listeners how they can reach out to you if they need any support. And then where to find your book. Well, there is that little uh, bookseller, Amazon, which is probably the easiest place to find it. You can find, you know, I bought jeffwall.com in like 1997 as the internet was first kind of getting going <laughs> and it sat dormant for over 20 years and uh just earlier this year i finally put up content on the books <laughs> i've written on the investments i've made on the different media appearances and articles and things like that so you can now find all things jeff Wald on jeffwall.com 
Thank you for that, Jeff. And for those tuning in, make sure to follow and subscribe to us on all streaming platforms, including our socials at Go Entrepreneur Yourself, and leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts.